Well, probably one of the most frightening places in the entirety of the world uh, is the high school lunch area. Uh, where you sit, as I'm sure you know, is fraught with meaning. Um, I mean, who are you really? You have to decide. Uh, sit in the wrong place, your reputation could be ruined forever. Think more highly of yourself than you actually are. Someone will help you along with figuring out that you don't belong. I mean, where do you belong in this scenario? What kind of people are the right kind of people? And how do you decide, you know? You know how it goes. Uh, there are some social groups that are just socially repulsive. And to align with them, of course, is to align yourself in a bad way for the rest of your high school career. You know, uh, in our day for the jocks, you know, it was the nerds that were repulsive. But also in my day for, for the punks or the goths, you know, the jocks were repulsive. You don't sit with them because they're ridiculous. Uh, you know, you wouldn't be caught dead with that crowd. But thankfully, of course, now we are all grown and those sorts of pressures no longer exist. And people don't repulse us in any way. Um, or, or do they? I mean, one of my favorite stories from my time in Tennessee was we had just moved into a fairly new home in a neighborhood that was half new, half old. And uh, one of the old neighbors who had lived there previous to us um, came over to greet us, to welcome us to the neighborhood. You know, we set our pleasantries. And then he told us he was going to go visit the other new next door neighbor who had also moved into one of these fairly new homes uh, in the neighborhood. Um, and so they did that, I guess, and I heard all about it the next day when my brand new next door neighbor, this new guy, this guy who was just like me, brand new to the neighborhood, said, yeah, that guy came to my house. I kicked him right off my porch. And I was like, well, why did you do that? He said, I mean, he was wearing a Bernie Sanders shirt. I said, you know, you get off my porch with that and don't ever come back on my property. And the next day he had his whole front yard lined with Trump signs just to make sure that the guy knew, you know, where he stood. I've never seen a relationship begin and end uh, as quickly to date. What was interesting is that they both had mentioned me on different occasions that after learning I was a pastor that they would love to come visit the church sometime. I mean, God forbid they come on the same fellowship meal Sunday and get sat at the same table. I mean, this is of course somewhere, somewhat where the rubber meets the road in our Christianity. Uh, who repulses us? And what if they were saved by Jesus too? What would that mean for how we now approach them? I mean, how open you are to others speaks volumes about the gospel that you believe, according to the scripture. The gospel, according to Paul, is either free and thus frees us to be open towards all sorts of people, or it has requirements that then limits those who are on the right side of things and who we can associate with. And we will see some of that in our text this morning. So the first thing I want us to see as we look at these, uh, this rather lengthy text is a gospel minus men. A gospel minus men. As Paul comes to the Galatian church, he wants to underline the authenticity and the authority of the gospel that he has preached to them. It is clear by the writing that some have come into Galatia, have started quite a bit of controversy, uh, and have pretty much posited before the people in Galatia that that's great that Paul came and preached the gospel to you, but you know, uh, it's a second-rate gospel from kind of a, you know, subpar or, or, or second-tier apostle. You know, he wasn't first-team all-league. He came late to the party. And so what he told you was great, but there's just some things that he didn't quite explicate fully to you. 
And so we're here to add those additional items that Paul failed to mention. I mean, there was pressure to say that since Paul wasn't one of the more prominent Jerusalem apostles, and since Paul wasn't with Jesus during his time of ministry on earth, while well-meaning, just wasn't the final authority on these things. And therefore, if a commission came from Jerusalem saying something different, it could trump what Paul had already spoken to the church in Galatia. And so Paul wants to stress to them very clearly that his gospel is not second rate. That in fact, it's not dependent on any man, apostle or otherwise, but that God himself revealed the gospel to him. That he got the gospel, if you will, straight from heaven. <laughs> and that it didn't come through any sort of chain of command, but that God himself, by revelation of Jesus Christ, revealed the totality of the gospel to Paul. And notice he sets it up beautifully for his very purposes. He says, God came to me outside of Jerusalem, so I wasn't dependent on the, you know, the people in Jerusalem. He came to me without an apostle. He came to me through Jesus himself, and he came through a prophetic revelation. So I have God's gospel from God himself, not dependent on Jerusalem location-wise or the, the apostolate that is located there. And you'll notice the negatives that he used. I did not consult with anyone, and I did not go up to Jerusalem and seek apostolic approval once God told me. So he wants to make sure that you know that uh, everything he taught and everything he preached, he got from God himself, and he never went, if you will, and asked the apostles to authenticate or stamp his gospel, at least not at this point. And he does this in order to assure them what I've preached to you is the real thing. There's much discussion as what, uh, you know, Paul says the only positive thing he did, he went away to Arabia and then Damascus for three years. There's a lot of conjecture about what happened in those three years. But one thing we do know that happened is that Paul preached the gospel to the Gentiles. And we'll see that even the Jews caught wind of it and rejoiced that the gospel, the faith that they had believed, the Gentiles, the, the, uh, the Paul, this one that was persecuting them, now preached that same faith to the Gentiles. So it's a gospel minus men or minus men's opinions. He got it straight from God. But notice it's a gospel with no additions. Paul states that after his initial meeting with Peter and then his brief meeting with James, he says he spent 15 days with Peter. I also met James, the Lord's brother. He said, but other than that, I had no uh, conversations with the apostles. He says, after that first initial meeting at year three, 11 years after that, he did go back up to Jerusalem, that he and Barnabas and Titus went there. We don't know exactly when this was. There's a lot, again, of conjecture. Uh, most likely, this is in reference to uh, Acts chapter 11, when Peter went up with the offerings that were given by the Gentile church to bring them to the church in Jerusalem. Uh, it probably predates the, uh, the council uh, that takes place in Acts 15, where they make you know, official pronouncements concerning circumcision and other things. Uh, but what Paul wants to stress, again, more than anything, is that his meeting with the apostles added nothing to the gospel he was already preaching. That he didn't go there and learn anything from them. He didn't have an aha moment where he realized something was lacking from what God had already revealed to him in that initial counter by the, uh, at Damascus. So you'll see there's no addition by the apostles. Uh, if you see in verse 6, they, those who seemed to be something, they added nothing to me. In fact, 
he laid before them the gospel he was teaching, and they confirmed that the gospel he was already preaching was the same gospel that Peter and the apostles had been preaching, that they were all on the same page. And notice his rhetoric is just masterful. Um, he keeps using this term, those who seemed to be something. So you'll notice he's, it's not a term where he's trying to denigrate, but he's saying you want to put a lot of weight on these guys because they're from Jerusalem and they have connections, you know, with the original apostles. He says, but all those who seemed to be something, they didn't add anything to me. But then at the same time, he says, but those seeming people also told me that my gospel is exactly right. So if you hold them in any kind of esteem, if you think they're amazing and waiting, uh, weighty, guess what? They told me my gospel was the true gospel and no different than theirs. They added nothing to what I was preaching. Notice he says that, in fact, his and Peter's calling and the gospel they are preaching are identical in verses 7 to 9 of chapter 2. He says, you know, the, the same gospel that Peter preached, I was preaching. The same entrusting by the Spirit that was given to Peter was given to me. The only difference between Peter's gospel or, or, or Peter's calling and my calling wasn't the gospel we preached or the, the power of the Spirit at work in us. It was simply the audience we were preaching to. I was called to the Gentiles and Peter was called to the Jews. Everything else, again, was identical. It becomes clear that for Galatia, there was this idea that Paul must have left something out. I mean, Paul was good, says this commission from Jerusalem. You know, he just needed a little more, uh, but he says that's not true. They added nothing to my gospel. And he says, if you approve Peter's message, that's the same message I preach. You have to be, you approve my message as well. And so it's clear there's no discrepancy and he shows that very clearly. He says, they offered me the right hand of fellowship. This symbolic gesture that they are in agreement, they are one. He says, they didn't in any way contradict what I was preaching. So not only is it not added to by the apostles, but notice it's a gospel with no additions at all. It, very strategically, uh, Peter t Paul takes with him Barnabas, this man who will go on mission with the Gentiles, and Titus, a Greek convert, one that we will hear much about in the book of Titus, one that Paul calls, you know, uh, really a son in the faith, one who would pastor the church in Crete, uh, one who would go on to be, you know, a great man of faith in the early church. And Titus really is a test case because he goes up as an uncircumcised Greek and notice where he goes. He goes to Jerusalem and he hangs out with all, you know, the, the whole Jewish church, with all Jewish apostles, you know, and if there's a time when you think they're going to speak up and say something, that, that if the law still needs to be obeyed in some way, or if the Gentiles are a subpar group to the Jews now in the church, this would be a time where it would seem to come front and center. But notice Titus is not forced to be circumcised. He says, even Titus who was with me, they didn't compel him to be circumcised and, and what Paul is doing there, you'll see in the, in the book of Galatians often, circumcision really is being used as a synecdoche or a way of say, saying, Titus wasn't commanded to keep any of the Mosaic law. Circumcision being the initiating rite, he was not put under compulsion to obey the dietary laws. He wasn't told to be circumcised. He didn't have to become a Jew in any way in order to be a faithful Christian. He says, Titus was not compelled while he was with me. 
He goes on to say, I mean, false brothers even spied out our freedom. Uh, what that all means uh, is uh, I'll leave to your imagination. Uh, but they found out uh, that Titus was not circumcised. And, you know, you got to, you know, poor Titus here. His business is just front and center uh, in, in the book of Galatians. I'm not sure how much he asked for this to be broadcast. Um, but for Paul, it's theologically important. He says, I have an uncircumcised Gentile surrounded, uh, you know, by the apostles in the Jewish church in Jerusalem. And while there, there was not one word spoken about his need to be circumcised. Even though it was brought up by those who spied out our freedom, the apostles asked nothing more of us at all other than that we remember the poor. He said, the one thing I was eager to do, and it probably is in relation to the fact that the Jerusalem church was struggling uh, because of persecution and because of famine, and the Gentile churches were supporting that church, and they were saying, hey, remember those of your brethren who are impoverished. And Paul says, I'd be glad to do that. But what we're not going to do, again, uh, we don't have to you know, keep the law in some ceremonial way. And so it's clear then, from even the apostolic witness in Jerusalem, that Peter and James and the rest, they believe in a law-free gospel. That the gospel they were preaching, they could look Titus in the eye and say, you need do nothing else to be one of us. And so notice they added nothing to Paul's teaching, but they also added nothing to Titus's living. So nothing's added to Paul's gospel and nothing was required of Titus to be a true Christian and a full brother in reference to the law. And for Paul, any addition in these ways is an utter destruction of the gospel. Notice what he says in verse 5, we did not yield to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel would be preserved. He said, if we were to give on this issue, the very truth, the very, the, the very thing that we stand on concerning the gospel would be completely undermined. These things are so diametrically opposed that to add to the one is to destroy it entirely. And we'll see what he means by that more here in a moment. So we have a gospel with no addition. But we also have a gospel with no division. And you see that in this apostolic conflict. I mean, this really is one of the more kind of exciting parts of the, you know, post-Acts of the Apostle, parts of the New Testament. We don't get a lot of... Uh, historical narrative in the epistles. We don't know a lot of the backstory. You'll hear some, you get the Philemon stories, and you'll, you'll hear some, you know, a quick references to what has happened in Paul's own life. But here we have Paul recounting an encounter between, you know, the two heavies of the early church, where Paul is confronting Peter to his face publicly about something that he feels he has erred on in the life of the church. Um, you know, uh, it, this text really, you can feel, if you will, you know, the, the tension in the air. Well, something had happened in the church in Antioch. And Antioch at this point, you know, if you can imagine Temecula, Murrieta combined the population, that was about the size of Antioch at this time. There had been a pretty large influx uh, of Jews into the area. About 10% or more of the population was Jewish. And so it shouldn't surprise us that the church then became mixed as well uh, between Gentile converts and Jewish converts. And then because of that, of course, the scenario that we face in this text arose. So, so what do you do? What happens now in a church of Jew and Gentile? What about Jews who really are still keeping some of the Jewish customs? Will they be stopped? 
And what about Gentiles? Well, they need to start taking up some of these Jewish customs, some of the law of Moses, in order to be considered faithful by their Jewish brethren. And Paul says, hey, before James's guys came up here, Peter had table fellowship with the Gentiles. I mean, there was Peter so convinced that the gospel created a new nation, no longer made up of purely Jew, no longer just Gentile, but those who believe in Christ now become one nation in Christ. He was so convinced of it that the dividing wall of separation had been torn down, that the ones who had been afar off had been brought near, that, that God had said, don't call unclean what I have called clean. He was so convinced that he sat down at the same table with Gentiles and partook of a meal with them. Now, you may not think that's a big deal. That doesn't sound, you know, earth-shattering. Uh, but it is a big deal. I mean, if you look at the realities of table fellowship, even if you just read the Gospels and see what, what's the big complaint about Jesus, he sits down and eats with publicans and sinners. You can't trust this guy. Look at who he eats with. It says everything about his character and about his cleanliness and about what he believes theologically. And so for Peter to sit down at table and eat food prepared by unclean hands, bought at an unclean farmer's market, with food probably sacrificed to idols somewhere along the chain before it got sold at market, surely not everything at that table was on the kosher list, and yet there Peter sat, believing that the good news of Jesus Christ had so purchased the person across the table from him that he wasn't going to forsake calling him a brother because of what was served, you know, uh, in those dishes laid before them. That he would say that that one who sits across from him, even though he does not keep any of the law of Moses, is 100% his brother and a fellow member in the body of Christ. He says, but now... You know, these James guys came around. Uh, and, and Peter's thinking through the complexities of the situation, you know. Uh, what are they going to think, you know? The, the guy's wearing a, a Bernie Sanders shirt on my porch, or, you know, he's got Trump signs on the lawn. You know, they're coming with red hats on. What are, what are they going to think if they see me with these people? And remember, Peter is the apostle to the Jews. These people are coming as a commission from Jerusalem. Part of it's like, you know, I don't want to lose my witness to the people that God's called me to. I mean, if they know that I'm here, you know, not merely acknowledging the Gentiles in the church, but eating with them as if we're one together and becoming, in their eyes, unclean by what I'm eating. So maybe it would just be safest. Even though I don't believe he and I are any different, it would be safest if I just remove myself from the situation. And it's probably, not, it's probably best to not offend these guys. You know, they hold to a little stricter view of things. They mean well, though. You know, and they're going to hassle me. If, and they're definitely going to report it, you know, to everyone in Jerusalem if I don't move. Why cause an issue? And so you'll notice the language that Paul uses. It says, Peter drew back in verse 12 and that, that term is used a lot of times in the Greek as, as a military term for strategic retreat or withdrawal. You know, it's something you do in war to, to save yourself some of the unnecessary casualties. And Peter, you know, he starts to do the mental math on what this might cost him. And he says, you know, the best strategy at this point 
is just leave and remove myself from a situation that might cause offense to these ones over here who believe that Gentiles in some way are still unclean or less clean than Jews. It says his motive was fear. He feared what would happen. And so Paul says, you know, he played the hypocrite mainly because he theologically knew better. Peter had just you know, if you will, uh, by his life confessed that he really did believe the Gentiles were just as much a part of the family as Jews, but then by his actions, he said something completely different. And Paul says that action undermines the very truth of the gospel. Notice the reasons. He says, hey, Peter, if just last week, you know, you were sitting across from the, uh, the bacon-wrapped jalapeno poppers and uh, you didn't have any problem with it. If you were a Jew and you ate with unclean people, and according to the law, that would mean you became unclean. If you're a Jew and you live like a Gentile, if you're a Jew and you can't keep the law of Moses, how is it you are now going to require these Gentiles to be under a burden you can't bear? You don't even keep it yourself. He says there's a gospel issue here in this sort of hypocrisy. Why would he say that? I mean, why would simply removing yourself from a table somehow undermine the truth of the gospel? That seems like a pretty large statement for an action that, again, I think you, you know, if, if Peter was giving me his report, I'd be like, I think I understand why you did it. I get it. You know, why have all that headache? You know, think all the emails you'd get on Monday from the Judaizers that are frustrated. Like, you just saved yourself all kinds of, you know, labor uh, by not getting into it. So what's the issue? Why is it a gospel issue? Why is it at stake? Because leaving the table says, Gentiles are still unclean in some sense. Or they're at least not at the same level of cleanliness as the Jews. That those once afar off ones, they were brought near, but not all the way near. You know, the dividing wall has been torn down, but still they're on the other side of it just a bit. And as a leader, Peter truly led. And according to Paul, uh, uh, according to Paul all the Jews followed him in his hypocrisy. And to Paul's own chagrin and almost seeming lack of uh, credulity, he says, even Barnabas was carried away in her hypocrisy. His co-laborer in the gospel to the Gentiles rejected the Gentiles at table fellowship after going all over God's creation, calling them into the kingdom. And Paul says, something has been radically undone here by these sorts of actions. It destroys the gospel because it changes the basis of the gospel that they preach. Somehow it is based still on worth. For Peter to die table fellowship, it says something about these Gentiles is unworthy still, or just less worthy. But whatever that could be, either died on the cross with Christ, or the gospel they preached is a different gospel altogether. Either our unworthiness died once and for all when we were crucified with Christ, and therefore our fellowship is based on the same mercy and grace, or there's still stuff left to be done. It still has something to do with our own actions and activities. If fellowship is based on some condition of what makes someone preferable, or if it makes, what makes someone acceptable, 
then it is no longer all of grace and the truth of the gospel is utterly flatlined and turns again into the law that the gospel came to put to rest. There are no classes in the church of Christ. It is not a caste system. You know, there are no front row Christians in the kingdom, or there's no order, you know, in our California culture, you know, the back row is the, is, the, is the good spot. In the lunchroom of the church in California, the back row is where you want to be. Only, you know, try hard, sit up close. No offense to all you guys. Okay. If we say that there are classes, or there are ranks of Christians, or those who somehow rank higher than others, we deny the truth of the gospel. And this is because we see in our, you know, uh, the reality of the gospel says that all of us come on the same footing and in dire need. And if we somehow say, yeah, well, I mean, I had some need, just not the kind of the need of the people behind me. You know, they're a little bit lower, needed Jesus more in some different way. I mean, think of how we see this even in our own history. Uh, you know, we're black uh, members of churches were separated into the galleries of the church and were only allowed to take communion after every white person in the church had been served. What does that say about the table from which they're being served from? It says, you know, well, there still is some sort of rank, you know, in heaven. And Paul would say of that, that's an undermining of what the gospel declares about how one comes to the church of Christ. How can there be any division when all of us come on the same footing, all of us are here admitting, you know, as we got down on our knees this morning or as we come to this table after the sermon, we're all admitting that we could not save ourselves. We're all acknowledging that our sins, whatever they may be, were worthy of God's condemnation. We're all saying that whatever obedience we have, you know, no matter how great or how lacking, it was utterly insufficient to gain us any sort of status and standing with God. And the reality is, no matter how much better you get, or how much clearer your thinking becomes, or how much more noble your life choices are, those things will never be enough to put any claim on God's love and say, you now owe it to me because I deserve it, or I've done something worthy of your affection. And what we do week in and week out when we come here is acknowledge that all that we are, both our best things and our worst things, are insufficient, and God in his grace saved us anyway. And so then to say to someone across the aisle, I believe that for myself, and I believe it mostly for you, if you would also do this one thing, is to put an onus on the gospel that Paul says destroys it altogether and undoes what Christ has done in his person. You see, the grace that we hopefully celebrate for ourselves is the grace that God calls us then to lavish on one another. The th way that you reflect and live with your own madness, the way that you can look at yourself in the mirror, is hopefully based in large measure on what Christ has said about you. But the way that you can look at your brother and sister and see them in the same light has to be on that same basis. It can't be grace for me and some grace for you, but also these other things that must be in addition. You know, just because some of us have acceptable sins, you know, there are sins that we culturally are okay with, right? Um, <clears throat> if you're greedy in America, no one's going to look down on you. In fact, you know, you'll probably have a, 
a pretty good following on Instagram or something to that effect. If you're vain, you surely will. Uh, there are sins that as a culture we don't quite get as exercised about. And of course, that affects us even in the church. But there are other sins that are far less acceptable. You know, the dirty ones, the ones that make us feel uncomfortable. Uh, and a lot of times we rank each other even in the church based on those things. And Paul's saying, all of your sins, acceptable and unacceptable, are worthy of the condemnation of God. And therefore, you must receive your neighbor even if they're tainted by the things that you know that you would never do. You see, the beauty of the message that Paul will preach and that we'll study for the weeks to come is that it is all of grace for you. That God really does love you. Despite all of the sins you've committed, despite all of, you know, your best intentions never being met, in spite of what you will do in the future that you can't even fathom you would do. But that same grace that God gives to you and lavishes upon you, he lavishes upon the person sitting to your right and the person sitting to your left. And if that grace is free to you, the love that we give to one another must be based on that same freedom and not withheld as we wait for everyone to kind of clean up their act or measure up to our standard. And so may we, as a community, believe in the gospel of free grace in such a way that it's given to the person that, if you will, uh, you wouldn't sit at their lunch table in high school maybe, but those days are over now. You know, those walls have been broken down. The grace that has been lavished upon you must now be lavished upon those who you might not agree with on every issue. But that's not what God's basing his salvation on. He's basing it on his love. And may we then love one another based on that same goodness. Let us pray.